Well, hello, Professor. Hey, hello. Hello, Patrick. Hello. All right. Welcome. No, thank you so much. Thank you. So today we are going to discuss your book, Diplomacy and Black and White, John Adams to Saint Louverture and the Atlantic World Alliance. It's, uh, it's nice to finally have you on. Life intrudes, doesn't it? Life does intrude. Uh, <laughs> I wish we could get around that, but it doesn't. But I'm just so thrilled uh, at your interest. I've been looking forward to having this conversation for a while. Okay, that's cool. So uh, let's start uh, with March 4th, 1797. Adams assumes power as the second U.S. president. Two months later, May 2nd, 1797, Toussaint Louverture assumes the leadership of the Saint-Domingue colony. So domestically, what's going on at home for each of these men? Let's, uh, let's start with John Adams' uh, political risks and then we can go on to Louverture's military risks in Saint-Domingue. Excellent. No, and that's a great, I think that's a wonderful place to start in talking about these two men together. I mean, and domestically in the United States, you know, in March of 1797, John Adams is stepping into some very big shoes. He is following George Washington, uh, who really was a man among men during his own time. And he is coming in as much less popular than Washington and is trying to figure out how he is going to distinguish himself after being in the shadow. He had been George Washington's vice president for eight years and had really been in the shadows and had really had very little engagement with the administration. And he's also assuming the presidency at a time when the country, the United States, is beginning to not split militarily, but split intellectually over the issue of slavery, with northern states really beginning to say, we want to try to find ways to live without slavery, or at least not having slavery in our own boundaries. And the southern states have really doubled down on, we are not going to get rid of slavery, and we're going to increase the laws that make it harder to free enslaved people. That's what, George, that's what John Adams is facing when he walks in to the presidency in Saint-Domingue as uh, Toussaint Louverture is being installed as the general-in-chief of all armed forces of the military in Saint-Domingue and as the governor-general two months later, he is facing uh, a situation of how do I govern a colony that uh, until four years ago, the vast majority of the population had been enslaved with an incredible mortality rate. How do I, another question that he has to ask, how do I govern generals who are all just as ambitious as I am, who are all just as capable as I am, and how do I maintain this environment within Saint-Domingue while not alienating people across the Atlantic world? How do I 
look beyond Saint-Domingue and make people not fear what is going on here in Saint-Domingue. Those are some of the problems that both of these men are having to face as they walk into these new positions. Okay, so let's broaden it out now. At the same time, the Atlantic world is in the throes of revolutions. So what's going on internationally within the context of, of what these men uh, have to fix, uh, face uh, uh, you know, domestically? What are so, the challenges yeah. for them and their risks internationally? Yeah. Both For both men, both men have to contend primarily. One of the biggest issues that both men have to, to deal with is the conflicts, the ongoing conflicts between Britain and France, right? Neither one of these uh, territories can operate beyond what is going on between Britain and France. And they've been at war with each other since, 1790, since 1793. And each of them, Britain and France, kind of want the United States and Saint-Domingue on their side. And particularly, I'll, I'll, I'll do them se separately here for a second. Uh, France is already very upset with the United States because under George Washington, uh, when France and Britain went to war, Washington refused to aid France against Great Britain, which in, some, in France's mind was a breach of the treaty that the United States and France had broken in the 1770s, which brought the United States into being. And so France, at some, with some legitimacy, felt betrayed by the United States and was very upset. And what we see is Adams takes his position. There's a kind of quasi-war, this naval war that is going on between the, Brit the American Navy and the French Navy. In Saint-Domingue, the reason, one of the reasons that Toussaint Louverture has, has ascended in the way that he has is that he, that nation has been fighting with France, with France, Spain, Britain, all in the last five years before his ascendancy and trying to maneuver which one of these major powers as, as these, these wars continue across Europe and they expand into the colonies across the Caribbean. Where is he going to calibrate? How is Toussaint Louis going to, who is he going to side with at this moment? Because he actually early on had started out fighting for the, for the, for the Spanish against the French. Then he switched sides early, you know, earlier on and went from the Spanish side to the French side. So Louverture has been doing this Atlantic world dance, this political dance. And he, he really has a neck. He really had a neck. One of the things that Louverture had over many of his contemporaries was a knack for timing, knowing when to change alliances based on what was going on in the world. He was really good at that. So you make the distinction early on that uh, though both Adams and Toussaint rose from revolutions in their respective spheres, Adams, uh, however, helped craft the intellectual scaffolding from which the American Revolution took place, uh, but to say, on the other hand, didn't help craft the initial revolt in Saint-Domingue. He, he came after. Why was it important for you to make that distinction between the two men? Yeah, I, 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 I thought it was important for me and for the readers of the book to really understand that revolutions are dynamic. And, and these men, you know, they're, they're, I think it is matter in understanding someone why where they are in the term in terms of revolution for as you said with john adams like, he was there at the beginning he laid out a lot of the intellectual 
foundation upon which the American Revolution uh, was built. He was the greatest proponent uh, in the Continental Congress for the Declaration of Independence. He didn't write it. Jo Thomas Jefferson wrote it, uh, but he was there and he championed it in the negotiations. He championed the um, Massachusetts uh, Constitution, a rewriting of that that ended slavery in Massachusetts. He wrote the model treaty that is going to be uh, America's first alliance with France. And I, and I thought that important because when he takes over as president of the United States some 20 years later, it is all of that knowledge and that intellectual dexterity that allows him to negotiate with a man unlike any other Americans had interacted with, whether it's from, a, you know, Toussaint Louverture being racially different, from his background being different. The point I wanted to make about laying, that, laying the groundwork for Adams is he was able to see Toussaint Louverture and the, the, the revolution that was going on in Saint-Domingue in a very different way than a, than a Thomas Jefferson or a George Washington. For Toussaint Louverture, the fact that he really did not start the um, the Haitian Revolution, that he there's you know still some debate about where he was, when it began, and how soon he entered it. The point I wanted to make there was to demonstrate his skill at being able to analyze a situation, analyze the players involved, and 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 find ways to maneuver his way to the top. I mean, I really want to. I really want the readers to understand how significant it is that Toussaint Louverture came into the, the revolution late, but he is going to ascend to the very top of it. And that both of these men had skill sets that made them the right people in the right place at the right time to uh, create the kind of diplomatic actions that they do together. So, uh you uh, you talk about John Adams's uh, administration practice quote idealistic internationalism unquote. Well, what's that? What did what did what did you mean by that? Can you flesh that out for us a little bit? Yes. No. Thank you. And thank you so much for for grabbing onto that point because I do think it's it's one it's I think it's fairly important to the book and it's one of the things I was really wanting to get across. One of in the ways in which I discuss uh, John Adams in this is idealistic internationalism is very different in the ways that George Washington or Thomas Jefferson approached his foreign policy. John Adams inherited a, a, a country that was very, very, I mean, I know it's hard to see the United States, you know, as not being a hegemonic, a major power, but in 1797, it was not, it was a very small player on the world stage. And John Adams w was really, he was adamant at not being either under Britain or under France. He really wanted to carve out an independent uh, operation for the United States. And he was able to do that because of the way he saw the world. And I'll give you a few. He saw the world very differently than other Americans at the time. And I'll give you a couple examples to build the point that I want to make. When he was U the U.S. minister in France uh, in the 17, I'm sorry, in Great Britain in the 1780s, he had the opportunity to engage Muslim nations, the Barbary states of North Africa. He and he and Thomas Jefferson got into an incredible it went into a remarkable disagreement over about how to approach these non-white uh, negotiators, these non-Christian negotiators. And 
where where I think John Adams bested Thomas Jefferson was John Adams didn't care about their race. He didn't care about their religion. He viewed these men as, from the eyes of what is in the best interest of the United States. And he approached it that way. And he opened negotiations with them as president with some of the same when he became president in 1797 with some of these same Muslim uh, negotiators, he negotiated a treaty, not based on race, not based on religion, but based on we're going to we're going to negotiate with these non-white people, these people who are different than we are, based on what I believe is in the best interest of our country. And it is that kind of idealism. He saw the United States as bigger than it was. And he was able to look past the differences of other people. And I believe that was essential to the way in which he approached uh, his interactions with Toussaint Louverture, looking beyond the race of his interlocutors, the people he was negotiating with, looking beyond the differences between Saint-Domingue and uh, the United States and saying, I see an opportunity here that allows the United States to grow larger and to reach our potential by engaging people who are unlike ourselves. And that's the type of idealism that I believe that he brought to the office of the presidency in ways that others did not at the time. Okay. Perfect. So I guess in some ways, uh, when, when I read that, I said to myself that uh, this, is, this sounds like we can actually retroactively pass moral judgment on the United States as far as race is concerned, because here you are back then, they had an opportunity to engage, you know, non-white countries around the world, but because of, you know, uh, uh, white supremacy, uh, uh, they a lot of them chose that instead of, you know, choosing the path that John Adams did, correct? Yeah. Patrick, you nailed it. You absolutely nailed what I think is at the heart of my book because when i think when i as i was writing the book and as i as i think about it as you just said the united states had an opportunity the united states had an opportunity to not to do something different to relate to people in in a in a in a, in a way that was to relate to people different than themselves as equals and they chose because of racism because of a racist attitude and because of their commitment to the enslavement of black people, they consciously chose not to do that. I find it sad. I find it just abhorrent. And I do think there's a moral judgment to be made that it wasn't as if everybody's always doing this, that this was the only way. No, Haiti gave them an opportunity. Toussaint Louverture offered them an opportunity to be different. Jean-Jacques Dessalines offered them another way. And white American leaders at the time chose racism. They mm -hmm. chose that. And, that. and I do think that deserves our, our moral indignation and mm -hmm. condemnation for a choice, a conscious choice that was made when they had the clear advantages of another opportunity. So, uh, are you a fan of The Godfather? <laughs> <laughs> I, 
I'm you, going you mean somewhere like the, with the, this. the trilogy, right? The, with yeah. Marlon Brando. Yes, yes, I love those movies. Yes. Now, it, now, now, if you say part three was your favorite, we might as well end this interview. Right no, now. no, that, that is that is no, that is a non-discussion. <laughs> it is a disgrace to the rest of the series. Yes. All right. So I ask that because I think Coppola might sue you for copyright infringement because the way you set up that dinner party at Secretary Pickering's house was just pure genius. Uh, all, <laughs> yeah, uh, all the main characters were, you know, at least, you know, were there. Can you, uh, so let's do something similar to, to with uh, the Pickering uh, dinner party, what Coppola did with the wedding uh, big party uh, in the first Godfather, you know, to sort of set the stage of all the main characters. Yes. So, so set the stage for us uh, as far as who are the main characters uh, uh, at that uh, dinner party, uh, at Secretary Pickering's uh, uh, incredible dinner party. Who are the now, main characters? First of all, thank you so much. What a wonderful, wonderful uh, characterization of one of my favorite parts of the book. And in the, in the book actually opens, right, on this kind of muddy... Philadelphia afternoon where uh, Joseph Bunnell, um, Joseph Bunnell was a white Frenchman who had been sent from Cape Francais uh, in Saint-Domingue to Philadelphia. And he arrives there in December of 1798. So it's cold, it's muddy, it had rained the day before. And here he is walking upon these streets and he arrives at the Secretary of State's house, uh, Timothy Pickering. And um, and he he arrives there and he's allowed into he's he's welcomed into the home and this this dinner is happening uh, just after a very contentious day at the Congress and two of the congressmen who had really championed uh, Toussaint Louverture and Saint Domingue they they were there so it's about five people at this dinner and they're what they're doing is 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 really strategizing really strategizing in secret how they are going to bring these two these two countries together how these two different countries are going to work together over against the resistance that timothy pickering knows he is going to encounter and it really is a wonderful planning session where they go they 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 consider who are the adversaries how do we get to them what are their needs and how do we how do we show them we have what you need if you give us what we need? It is that I and I've never really thought about the Godfather uh, depiction that you raised, but I think it is pretty apropos when you think about it. I mean, because one of the people that is there is Robert Goodlow Harper. He's from South Carolina. He's from South Carolina, so he is a Southerner, and so he was there to give the opinion. Okay, when we talk to Southern congressmen, when we talk to Southern. Uh, men, these are the things that they, they're going to need. You're going to need, he's telling this white man from Saint-Domingue, this former slaveholder from Saint-Domingue, that when you talk to my colleagues from the South, this is the way you have to talk about slavery. This is the way you have to talk about black people, right? And so, and then he, then he had, you know, and then he has Otis, right? Harrison Otis from Massachusetts. And his role there is to say, when you're talking to men from the North, this is the way you want to talk about trade. This is the way you want to talk about uh, shipping. And so together, they create this wonderful political strategy that is absolutely brilliant uh, and, and eventually successful. Mm -hmm. So uh, 
what are what are the uh, and this is all prep before they they they, they to meet the president, right? To meet yes. John, John Adams. So they've strategized of how the next meeting is going to happen, yes. right? Yes. So pick it up there. I will do that. Yes. Yeah. So before, because, you know, John Adams, you know, I, I put his name on the front of the book because he's the president at the time. And I think when, when the leader is sitting in, a, in, a, in the office, they should get credit for the things that go right. But they also should be blamed for the things that go wrong. That's the price of leadership. But the architect of U.S. diplomacy with Saint-Domingue was the Secretary of State, Timothy Pickering. He's a very, he's very little known in American circles, in American history circles, but in this case, he was central. And he understood that when he, when he took this plan to the president, with the, to the president of the United States, he was going to be able to, he needed to demonstrate that we can pull this off. So there is very little uh, evidence that Adams knew anything about this about this policy before, you know, before he actually meets him. So all these things that are happening in secret, all these things that are happening are to prep. So after this dinner, T Timothy Pickering takes um, uh, Joseph Bunnell, he takes the, um, the uh, envoy from Tucson Louverture, and he takes him with Harper, and then they go talk to Southern congressmen about getting um, a, a closer relationship with uh, Saint-Domingue. And then Harper and um, Harper will hand him off, hand Bunnell off to uh, Harrison Otis, and he and Timothy Otis, Timothy Pickering, and Bunnell will go and talk to Northern uh, congressmen about um, closer ties with Saint Domingue. And then after Timothy Pickering secures enough, what he believes is enough support, then he arranges a dinner uh, at the president's house between John Adams and Joseph Bunnell. And Adams meets with him. One of the things, uh, there was this common misunderstanding about Joseph Bunnell in early American history. And I understand that particularly around black history, people really wanted this to be the first dinner between the president and a man of color. But as it turns out, Joseph Bunnell was a, a, a white man operating on behalf of a man of color. And that makes it no less significant. They, not, they, they don't have just one dinner. John Adams invites Joseph Bunnell to the president's house in Philadelphia for two dinners, which means he is in, he is bought in on this plan because when word gets out and it does, it leaks to the newspapers as much as they're trying to keep the secret word gets out to the local newspapers position, but to particularly newspapers that are opposed to the president's actions talking about these dinners that the president is having with Bunnell and they try to discredit Bunnell. This is, you know, early on in, early on in American history, the media was a tool as it is today, a tool for trying to either to uh, support certain things, but also to distract from certain things. And when, when word gets out in the opposition newspapers that Tucson Louverture's envoy is meeting with the president, the newspapers make it known that he is married to a black woman. And so Marie, uh, Marie Francoise uh, Mouton Bunel was a former enslaved person. She and Tucson Louverture were, had been close friends for, for at least a decade prior to the revolution. And the newspapers began to smear Bunel's name because now the president of the United States has invited a white man to dinner, which is not that extraordinary, but this white man was 
was meeting with the president on behalf of a black leader and this white man is married to a black woman. Uh, and so that this these dinners and these secret negotiations became very, very public, uh, very, very quickly. But they did not they did not derail uh, the process of San Domingue and the United States growing closer together. So is this the and then well another thing I find incredible about this is <laughs> we're talking about 1797, right? Yes. The uh, a white man is the mouthpiece for oh. a black man behind the scenes. <laughs> <laughs> to think about it. I want the audience to think about that for a moment. Yeah, let's not yeah, I, I agree that let's not just pass by that as if you know that that was extraordinary. I mean it was absolutely extraordinary. And that was one of the things, and I won't I won't try to preempt thing, but throughout this book and throughout my research, the interplay between black men and white men in this book are just very different during this time period than you see anywhere else, not only in the United States, not only in San Domingue, but in the world. It, it was just absolutely extraordinary. And Toussaint Louverture made, and one of the, I argue in the book, that Toussaint Louverture made a calculated decision to send a white man in his stead. Mm -hmm. That was, I mean, he had plenty. He, his general staff was all black men and men of color. He had governors across said domain that could have gone, but he chose a white man because I believe Toussaint Louverture understood the minds of white Americans. And he, and he chose a white man who was married to a good friend of his. And so mm -hmm. there, so not only is the white, not only is Joseph Bunnell representing a black man but i argue in the book that he actually got his job because he was married to a black woman mm -hmm. and so in the 1790s it was currency in said domain at least for a white man to be close to black people whereas in many other cases it is the exact opposite and so what was going on in saint domingue and was incredibly revolutionary and Bunel was was faithful to his position. He he served Toussaint Louverture faithful. He represented his interests uh, with professionalism, and he was so good at what he did. He maintained that relationship. He he continued to work for Toussaint Louverture throughout Louverture's um, tenure uh, as Governor General of Saint Domingue, and he was going to take on that same role for uh, Jean-Jacques Dessalines when he takes over the country and declares his independence in 1804. Uh, so he really, really did not seem to have the issues of white versus black. He, 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 had, no, he had very little problems being a white man working for a black man uh, in the 1790s and into the early 19th centuries. And the question I have is how many white men could have done that during that time period? Uh, it really was an extraordinary juxtaposition of power uh, in what was happening in Saint-Domingue and eventually Haiti. So it's safe to say that Brunel was an affirmative action hire. 
<laughs> I mean, I'm just, <laughs> I mean, you know, a token hire. I mean, he, you know, he, we, he, he was there. He knew. I mean, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> he, he was, play- <laughs> okay, I got to catch myself. That was great. Um, he was part of Tucson Louverture's strategy mm-hmm. of showing the world that, showing the Atlantic world that Saint-Domingue was not a scary place. Mm-hmm. Saint-Domingue is a place that is operated on, on, on rationale, on prowess, on mm-hmm. intellectual ingenuity. This is not a place, and he was really trying to counter the narrative because by the time he takes over Saint Domingue in 1797, the the narrative in the newspapers and across the Atlantic world was Saint Domingue is a place of murder. It's a place mm-hmm. of massacre. And these black people there are just they're 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 operating like animals. And so one of his biggest uh necessities was to portray to the world a, 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 an up-and-coming nation that operated very similar to other Atlantic world nations and by sending this white man as his representative was one of the ways he was saying we can deal, we are, we are open for business with white Americans, with white people. We can operate and this, this narrative of that we just murder white people. Yes, we, we have defeated a lot of white people here on this island but that is not what we are about. We are not just about racial slaughter. Right. We are about opening ourselves for business. And Boudinelle was a was a I think the right person to send mm-hmm. that message. It's not just Coupetet Boulekai. You had to yeah, we're more we're more than that. So yeah. let's let's talk about the the actual uh uh trade um uh, uh you know uh pro- the properties of the trade. What 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 was the United States uh, 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 looking for yes. at the time, and what what did Toussaint want? And also, this in, another incredible thing was the use of the U.S. Navy for the first time on behalf yes. of Haiti. I want us to really get into that. That's that's fascinating yes. too. So, what are, what are the the particulars of the trade yes. that and each side was trying to get from the other? And, I, and once again, Patrick, you just asked such good questions. And I think talking about the trade allows me to, allows me to note another central aspect of the book. Mm-hmm. And that is, in terms of the Atlantic world, in 1797, 1798, 1799, the United States and Saint-Domingue were practically equals. They were both very prosperous colonies. They were uh, one's a country, one's a emerging country. They were very pro. The Atlantic world needed these two places to operate, and they were both fairly rich. They 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 provided a lot of goods to the rest of the Atlantic world, and so the United States needed Saint Domingue just as much as Saint Domingue needed the United States. It is so different than the way we think of. Haitian-American relations today. And one of the things I want this book to show people is that in the seven, in, in, when we first began, when these two countries first began to deal with each other, they dealt with each other as, relatively, as relative equals. And part of that was the trade. The United States had been trading with Saint-Domingue since the 1770s. I mean, since well before that. But the trade was so close. And Saint-Domingue would send to uh, the United States, they would send sugar, 
uh, they would send coffee, they would send indigo, many of the products uh, that you would find across Caribbean colonies. But the thing about Saint-Domingue is it was the world's leading producer of sugar in the Caribbean. And so those numbers went way up. And in return, the United States would send uh, foodstuffs, uh, particularly fish and other things like that. And it was a very, very brisk trade that these two had. But when these two men come to when these two men come to power uh, or take over the leadership, Saint-Domingue is only second in terms of trade with the United States, second only to Britain. I mean, which which says just how important and it is a it is just behind Britain in the amount of dollars in which they the United States and Saint-Domingue trade with each other. So these two nations, these two countries needed each other. And so when in 1798 Congress you remember I mentioned earlier that France was very upset with the United States for not helping out with the war, with, in its war with Great Britain. And so what it did was began to attack American ships in the sea. And as a reprisal, as a punishment to France, the United States put an embargo on all trade with France, including the Caribbean islands, the, the, the colonies in the, in the Caribbean. And this is where, when, when Toussaint Louverture initiated, and that's the other thing I want our readers to understand, it was a black man that initiated this diplomacy with the United States. It wasn't the United States dictating the terms. Toussaint Louverture sent Brunel to say, we have something you need. We have goods that you need, and we would like you to end the embargo and trade directly with us despite what Paris may have to say. So this is a very autonomous move that Toussaint Louverture is making. And when the United States responds, when John Adams responds, it's not we're gonna trade with all France, it is we're gonna open up trade only with Saint-Domingue. The embargo on all the rest of France stays, but we're gonna open up trade with these two nations. I mean, with Saint-Domingue directly. And so the United States and Saint-Domingue open this trade and I mean, just to give you a sense, there, there are reports that on some days, looking out at Cape Francais, there would be 400 ships out in the harbor awaiting to get from the United States to Saint-Domingue to, to offload those ports. It was an incredibly wow. important, it was an incredibly important trade relationship between these two countries when trade was the way in which countries across the Atlantic world enrich themselves. So it was no small task. It was mm -hmm. no small feat what these men were doing. And in order to maintain that trade, because France did not want this, France, Paris did not want this relationship between uh, Toussaint Louverture and John Adams. And so France began to send uh, its ships, the French ships, to, to attack and to take the goods that were headed for Saint-Domingue. Mm -hmm. Therefore, John Adams sent the United States Navy, he sent the, a squadron of U.S. ships, uh, including the Constitution, and it's a very famous American ship, it's actually moored out in Boston Harbor to this day, it's a very famous ship, and before it became famous, it, 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 was, the, it was the flagship of the American Navy in Saint-Domingue, and he sent it there initially to protect this trade between Saint-Domingue and the United States against the French. And what happens in 1799, uh, where the United States really engages what is uh, the Saint-Domingue Revolution, is in 1799, 
a rival to Toussaint Louverture, a rival by the name of Andre Rigaud, uh, a very capable general uh, in his own right, a man of color, um, starts a civil war against Toussaint Louverture to, to take over um, leadership of Saint-Domingue. And so Toussaint Louverture, the armies of Toussaint Louverture, which predominantly are in the north and predominantly black, uh, began to go, they go to war with the armies of Andre Rigaud, which are predominantly in the South and predominantly uh, of men of color, of um, Jean de Couleur, um, um, between uh, European heritage and African heritage. And, but it's not necessarily a war of color. Some, some people have talked about this as a war of color. My book doesn't do that. I don't go there because I think this is two men who were both very capable and who saw themselves as being able to lead this uh, lead this colony. And the United States picks a side. The United States sides very early on with Toussaint Louverture. And the United States engages the U.S. Navy to attack Rigo's uh, army, Rigo's uh, naval vessels. And they attack it very uh, on the side of Toussaint Louverture. They, they are very open. We are, we, we are not neutral in this fight. We want Toussaint Louverture to win because we believe the United States uh, and Toussaint Louverture can work together in a very different way than we could with with Rigaud. And not only does he send, not only does Adam send the Navy to Saint-Domingue, but he puts American, I mean, again, as you said earlier, Patrick, this is 1798, 1799, 1800, John Adams puts the, these white U.S. naval captains under the authority of Toussaint Louverture. Toussaint Louverture had the power and engaged the power to send American Navy ships to where he wanted them to go, and they obeyed his orders. The, I, I, and I can find no wow. other instance in history, and I love for somebody to show it to me. I'm not saying it's unique because I found it. It's just, I just can't imagine another instance where white American naval captains are taking orders from a formerly enslaved black man. And when I say taking orders, he tells the ship to go, they went. When Toussaint Louverture would board a ship, he would board the ship with full naval honor, which means they would fire their cannons in salute of a head of state coming on board this vessel, uh, which I just found that absolutely fascinating. And in letter after letter from these Navy captains, they say to Louverture, I am here to serve you. White American Navy captains are telling a black man in Saint Domingue, <laughs> I am sent here to serve you. I just would, I would just, I just, I, every time I say it, I just can't believe that yeah. I actually found that in the record. And I'm just trying to find anywhere else in history where you see white Americans telling a black man, I came here to serve you. And no. in the first engagement, and I'll, and I'll stop here, but in the first engagement. No, please of, keep going. Of, of, of the United States. So, you know, I mean, when we think about the U.S. Navy and alliances, most people are going to think that we, we were first allied with France or we were first allied we, uh, we allied our Navy with the British, but it was in Saint-Domingue. It was the first time in American naval history that the United States sent its naval forces uh, to protect and defend 
the, the territory of another of a foreign ally and it wasn't just sh moving ships here and there the one of the ships the general green actually fired like actually shot its cannons in a hostile manner against R Rigo's forces that actually turned the tide in that war like it, it was one of the last major battles in that war and it was a coordinate Toussaint Louverture coordinated this attack he had the Navy, the U.S. Navy bombard the beach off Jacques Mill, the harbor at Jacques Mill. And then he came in with his uh, his forces in a, in a coordinated attack between the U.S. Navy and, and, and Louverturian army to defeat uh, Rigo at, at Jacques Mill. It's, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal engagement. And I was just shocked that I'd never heard this before as I went through. You know, here I am, have gone through all this schooling that I went through, and I'm like, why don't we talk about this? Why don't we talk about this close relationship the United States has had with Haiti, even at its inception? And I think it goes back to something you said earlier in our conversation, because there is moral condemnation there for the United States to have been this close and this integral into the early relationship that 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 helps to lead to the creation of Haiti and then turn its back on Haiti. Mm -hmm. I do think there is something I just think there is something morally degraded, morally reprehensible about that decision that white Americans took to say we know that this is possible. We know this is a profitable relationship. We know there are mutual benefits for both of our nations. And yet we're going to succumb to racism. We're going to sell our our democratic soul to slavery and, and that's one of the reasons i think we don't talk about it as much so uh so the 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 agreements the agreements the trade it happened right yes. between the two nations yes. and there's the military support uh pick up after that when did things start you know what happened to both yes. men and uh that sort of made that diplomacy in black and white yes. short-lived and yes. how, what time span? How, how many years did you think that relationship lasted? Uh, two. Yes, yeah, so it was. Uh, so both men, both men come to come. Both men take control of their nations in um, seventeen ninety seven. Mm -hmm. Bunel Bunel arrives in December of seventeen ninety eight. The official Congress, the Congress votes in uh, February seventeen ninety nine to give. Uh, the president, President John Adams, the authority to have negotiations and to secure a, an agreement with uh, Saint-Domingue. In June of 1799 is the official treaty. There's an official treaty uh, between um, Toussaint Louverture, Edward Stevens, and um, a British representative in June of 1799. And, um, and so they conclude an actual treaty. Uh, the tripartite treaty in 79. So that's the official opening of relations. The civil war with um, Rigaud kicks off just a few months after that. That war ends in 17 in, in, in the beginning of 1800. So, so from June, mostly from July of 1799 until uh, John Adams is defeated in his presidency and it's taken over, uh, you know, it's, he's um, succeeded by Thomas Jefferson. So the, the relationship lasts only from about July of 1799 to March of, seven, of 1801. So about a year and a half. It's a very short time period. But a lot occurs in that time period. 
mm-hmm. after you know after um, the war with Rigo is, is um, solved and Toussaint Louverture is the unequivocal leader of Saint Domingue, he really he begins to govern the country, uh, puts in some uh, policies uh, about labor, about marriage. He's really trying to build a society uh, throughout the, you know, I mean, Saint-Domingue had been at war from 1791 almost continuously um, to, to 1800. And so now he is trying to, to build a society, give now free people, free people of color, free black people, a sense of citizenship, a sense of society, a sense of community. And he's getting a lot of encouragement from uh, the United States. Um, John Adams sends a doctor, a white American doctor named Edward Stevens. He sends him there with a draft um, constitution because there's no, there's no constitution in St. Domain. And one of the things that uh, Toussaint Louverture is going to do, which I think was one of the great things he did, uh, was to implement a Saint Domingue constitution in 1801, and parts of those documents are taken directly from the uh, document that um, Edward Stevens uh, brought down on behalf of the president. Not all of them, but he did take some of that. And again, there's this real, there's a lot of collaboration between these two nations. Uh, and then he decides, uh, Toussaint Louverture decides that he wants to take over all of Hispaniola. Right, so Santo Domingo, the Spanish colony uh, right next door to Saint Domingue, uh, had been ceded back to France, but it it's remained Spanish. Well, Toussaint Louverture decides, well, if I'm going to expand this colony, I'm going to engulf the entirety of of of, of Hispaniola, the whole island, and the United States encourages him to do that, and the United States sets up the the navy around the entire island so, to give Toussaint Louverture the ability to do that. But this is a Toussaint Louverture decision. And he goes in and he takes over all of Hispaniola. So by 1801, Toussaint Louverture expanded Saint-Domingue to include all of Hispaniola. He abolished slavery uh, in Santo Domingo. So in 1801, when he ta- when Louverture takes over the island, there is the, there is the dominance of black people on that island for the first time since 1492, since Columbus had arrived on that island, slavery no longer exists on the island. And, and so throughout this time, there are so many different things that are going on, so many positives. And then Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson uh, takes over as president in 1801. And all of these things I just mentioned, and we've been talking about Patrick, within a month of Thomas Jefferson taking over, he removes the U.S. Navy completely from San Domingan waters. Uh, he recalls every last ship automatically. He, he downgrades Edward Stevens' uh, position from a consul general, from a minister, to just a commercial agent. He is undoing, within his first five months, he undoes every diplomatic um, stride that John Adams has made. And... And that is how, in the United States, John, this legacy begins to be erased and forgotten. From the San Domingan side, when Toussaint Louverture issued the, the San Domingan Constitution, he, he really invited the wrath of Napoleon uh, in France. 
And because then Napoleon really saw that this is a man that we cannot control. And so Napoleon sends an expeditionary force uh, in 1801. It arrives in 1802. And, you know, within six months of that, of that of Leclerc and his expedition arriving in Saint-Domingue, Louverture was arrested uh, and sent to France. And he is going to be imprisoned at Fort de Joux out on the eastern borders with Switzerland. And he will die there uh, in April 1803. So what had begun in, 18, in 1797, continued in 1798, is almost completely undone by 1802. Um, so it's very short-lived. And it's a book in the end of a lost opportunity. And I think that's the sad part that I really, I did not want to end on that note, but in the end, it was an opportunity that could have led to a very, very different relationship between Haiti and the United States. And once Haiti declared its independence, once Jean-Jacques Dessalines took over from Toussaint Louverture, defeated the French uh, in, 18, in November of 1803 and declared the country independent, the United States decided we will have no part of that, even though the United States had been an integral part in assisting and collaborating with the Haitian people to get to that point. Thomas Jefferson decided he wanted no part of that. And our relationship, I think, from that decision on, and not just Tom Jefferson, because I don't want to blame it on him, but th that decision and then the successive decisions to not engage Haiti as an equal nation right up until today at some level, I think has really hurt the what could have been between Haiti and the United States for almost over, for over two decades. And, and Haiti and the for world. Two centuries. Yeah, Haiti and the world. Yeah. Haiti and the world for over two, for over two centuries, yes. Wow. And it would have been amazing what, what that could have done for, for slaveholding uh, United States at that time, right? Like, what, because it was still, it wasn't until what, 1865? That, it was, uh, yes. Yeah, it was not until 1865. And, yeah. and, I and I believe at some level it was because of what Haiti could have meant for slavery in the United States. Mm -hmm. I believe that was one of the most powerful influences that the United slaveholders and the slaveholding proponents in the United States understood that if we acknowledge this independent nation, if we acknowledge these black people as being able to govern, being able to have a military prowess, that is going to hurt our capacity and our arguments for maintaining the enslavement of black people in our own nation. And I think that that commitment to slavery really it hurt the United States and it hurt Haiti and it hurt us, it hurt both of our nations and the world because of that. So why do you think this this was this isn't based on your 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 research like this wasn't found like when I first talked to you about it I was I I didn't know that I talked to even some some other stories yeah I kind of they kind of know but how come that's not is it because the period of collaboration is so short why has that been not discussed or uh, the archives i mean do, are there yeah. any nothing you found nothing on it were you the first one to discover this and actually publish a book on it or was it there for others to see that people just didn't other historians just didn't take it on well, no that's that, that's a really really great question and i and i don't want to i want to say i'm the first to to notice this right because for a century before my book came out 
uh, Mary Trudley, Rayford Logan, uh, some major, major historians of Haitian-American relations had talked about it, but they talked about this relationship as simply a, well, in two fact, in two ways, right? One, they talked about it, um, they talked about it in a way that, oh, this was just the United States using Saint-Domingue as a way to get back at the French, right? So it had nothing to do with the relationship between Saint-Domingue and, and the United States. It was all about what the United States could do to hurt France. That was one proposition. The other was, this was all about trade, that the United States did not really care what was happening in uh, Saint-Domingue or the political uh, ramifications. They just wanted the trade. And I just found, when I thought about this, Patrick, I found both of those um, explanations lacking. And, and, and I'll tell you why I found them lacking, because when you look deeper at the, the ways in which race influenced this decision and the ways in which both Toussaint Louverture and John Adams and the people that worked for them negotiated the racial factors in this, you see people making decisions. John Adams made decisions, Toussaint Louverture made decisions, Edward Stevens made decisions, Joseph Bunnell made decisions that were all different than if you just wanted to hurt France or to just do trade. The ways in which these individuals, the ways in which these individuals related to each other, had dinner with each other in one of the negotiations in order to seal the deal on the negotiation, Toussaint Louverture reaches over and grabs the white hands of Edward Stevens. Moise, uh, General Moise, a nephew of Toussaint Louverture, invited uh, the officer, the white officers of the, uh, the USS Constitution to his home to have dinner. I mean, the, the president of the United States invited Bunnell to have dinner. It was the, 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 the residence of the U.S. minister in Saint-Domingue was, was one of Toussaint Louverture's rented houses. So, I mean, there was all these relationships that went unseen because previous scholars simply went with the trope of that the tropes that race didn't matter. And, mm -hmm. and when you, but when you look at it and you look at the archives, it's there, but if you're not asking the right questions, if you're not asking a question of why did these men do these things? Why did these men say these things? Then you don't get to the answers that I have. I simply, I mean, I looked at many of the same sources from the National Archives, from um, the Bibliothèque Nationale in Haiti, the, um, the French archives in Aix-en-Provence, they're there, but people just simply didn't see them in the way that I did. Mm -hmm. They simply, they saw them as just whole hum, um, boilerplate language, when what I saw was relationships being built and cultivated between people across different races at a time when that just simply wasn't the norm. Okay, so I guess that's a that's a, a this is a masterclass lesson on on uh, what you bring to the to the archives is what you're going to get out of it, right? Like uh, you, you nailed a, it. Yeah. Okay. No, no, you nailed it. What you go in, what you go in looking for, or not wanting to find, is what you're going to find and not find. Yeah, I I think it has so much more to do. I think it has as much to do with the author, with the researcher. Mm -hmm. as with the sources. Mm -hmm. I, that's a great way to put that. Yeah. Well, Professor, thank you. Thank you. This was very, very enlightening. This is very, a great book. I hope everybody gets it. Thank you for being on the show.
Thank you, Patrick. Thanks so much for reading my book so closely and so for such great questions. This was an absolute delight. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Please follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Negmawa Podcast. That's Mawa with a W, not an R. <laughs>